Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Conroe Bible Church. It's good to see you all this morning. If you were one of our guests, I want to make sure that you know that you are welcome. We're glad that you're with us. Um, and before we get started with our time of worship, um, I want to pass a few announcements to you. The first one is we are going to celebrate communion this morning. Um, so if you did not manage to pick up communion elements, they're right there in the back in the middle on that little table. Please go ahead and grab those um, because we will share communion together in the middle of the service. Also, um, coming up for July 4th, we're going to have a July 4th party up here at the church from 4 to 7, um, and you're all invited to come and be a part of that. We're going to be providing hot dogs and hamburgers, so if you have not already signed up to let us know that you will come, we need a head count, and you can provide that head count for us via Church Center, and you can get there through the app on your phone, or you can get there through the website, um, conroebible.org. Either one would be fine. Um, also, I think this is on July 13th. I didn't put down the date. Is that a Wednesday? It is. July 13th. Um, CBC Kids is hosting a family nerf night up here at the church. CBC Kids is hosting it. But the name is Family Nerf Night. So if there are some people in the church that you've been wanting to shoot with a nerf gun... I recommend you show up Wednesday night to participate. You're not supposed to bring your own bullets or darts, <laughs> darts. You're not supposed to bring those, they'll provide them for you. Um, but that should be lots of fun. If you have questions, you can talk to Adam, um, our children's pastor. On the 15th, two days later, July 15th, our women's ministry is doing a Hearts to Serve um, service opportunity where you can be up here um, to help them prepare things for um, loving on people in, within our church and around our, our local area. Um, you can find out the details for that, more details for that, because there are things to prepare for on, on Church Center itself where the event is listed. And then finally, um, Kids Camp is coming up July 18th and registration is still open for kids age 5 to 11. Um, and I think that they can also still use volunteers, and you can also sign up there as well. So that's all I've got. Would you stand up with me? I'm going to pray, and then we'll begin our time of worship. Father, thank you for this morning, this time that we get to come together and be uh, with our family here and with you. I pray that this morning our worship would be honoring to you. I pray um, that you would draw near to us. Be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Like forgiveness 
you set me free All my chains have been lifted when the hands of love touch a broken life It feels like redemption I am overwhelmed by this gift of grace. Oh, and I know how healing feels. Cause all of my pain and all of my shame and all of my tears have been erased. It feels like redemption is raining down on me. And it feels like forgiveness has come to set me free. All my chains have been lifted. It's when the hands of love touch a broken life. It feels like saying goodbye. The past is ending. Say hello to a new beginning. No more night. The sun is shining. Like redemption is raining down on me. It feels like forgiveness has come to set me free. All my chains have been lifted. Cause when the hand of love touch a broken life, and when the hand of love touch a broken life, it feels
are forgiven 
washed by I'm no stranger to the prison I've worn shackles and chains I've been freed and forgiven I'm not going back I'll never be the same kind of thing that breaks a man breaks him down to his knees I've been broken more than a time or two yes Lord then he picked me up he showed me what it means to be a man and all my hope is in Jesus and thank God Father, we just humble ourselves before you today. We are, we're so grateful for your grace and your mercy in our lives, Lord. I just pray for, uh, for Chris as he brings the message this morning. I just pray that this message will leave here and go out into the community, Father, with each and every one of us. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for your, for your many blessings that we're just so not deserving love, Lord. And uh, just I pray over this church and all the, all the leadership, Father God. Just hide them behind the cross, Lord, in, in, their daily, in the daily decisions. Uh, we're so grateful to be here in your presence. In your heavenly name we pray. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Good morning. Um, we have the privilege and joy of observing the uh, ordinance or sacrament of communion together today. As Chris mentioned before we got started, the elements are in the back. If you hadn't already got those, now would be a good time to go back and, and, uh, and get those. Communion is a time for us to um, reflect, a time to consider, and a time to remember. We use the bread as a symbol of the body of 
Jesus, the broken bread is a symbol of the broken body of Christ. The cup of uh, grape juice as a symbol of the blood poured out for us. And today uh, we observe and re remember Christ's sacrifice. He died for us, taking our sin and giving us eternal life. Now, you, just so you know and make it clear, the act or the observance of communion does not save you. Um, it's an act of worship and remembrance. We have an open table here at Conroe Bible Church. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have placed your faith in him, uh, his payment upon the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, then we would love for you to participate with us today. If you have never turned your life over to Christ, if you've reserved that decision, if you've held back for whatever reason, Today would be a great day for that to happen. A day to declare his death and resurrection, to know Christ by grace through faith. And the simple gospel is this. Christ paid the penalty for our sins. He died on the cross, and his payment was sufficient to pay the penalty for our sins and to make us right with God. And we can know that by believing and trusting in his son. Now, the kids are still with us uh, in here. So parents, if you would uh, be responsible for your children and lead them in this time of worship, you know their hearts and uh, are responsible for that. So before we get started, if you haven't already done so, get your, your bread ready. I've got to put this down. I should have done that ahead of time. Okay. The verse that I would like for us to consider and uh, meditate on and pray through this morning as we prepare our hearts is Isaiah 53, 5. It says, but he pierced, he was pierced for her, our transgressions. He was crushed. For our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. So as we take uh, some time for prayer and, and meditation, remember his death, his payment, your forgiveness. Let's take a, a moment to go before the Lord silently.
1 Corinthians 11:26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, I pray, God, this morning as we are gathered together to observe this time of communion with our body of our fellowship here, Lord, that you would remind us of any wrongdoings, that we could c confess our sin before you and, and be clean. Lord, that we uh, could remember the ultimate price that you paid for us because of your great love for us. We just thank you for that. We just commit this time to you this morning, Lord Jesus, in Christ's name, amen. So if you would get your bread in your hand and I'm gonna read a, a verse and then we'll take the bread together. Uh, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, for I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance. Get your cup ready. Verse 25 says, in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, in remembrance. Lord Jesus, we do honor you today and we do remember your ultimate sacrifice. We pray God that as we are obedient in celebrating this um, time together in communion, that it would indeed uh, draw us closer to you, make us more Christ-like in our character and strength and that uh, you would use us for your kingdom purposes in this world. We praise you and thank you. And it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Good morning. I was about nine years old. I'm pretty sure I was nine. And dad had just lined me and my brother and sister up in the living room to try to figure out what had happened. My brother would have been seven. My sister would have been four or five, probably in between, given the time of year it was. <clears throat> and I got asked questions first. And the reason I was being asked questions was because one of our neighbors a couple of doors down had just learned that somebody wrote on their house in a permanent marker, and it said something along the lines of, 
I hate Cameron. And then it was signed by Daniel. Dad wanted to know if I did it. And I said, no, I would not do something like that. My brother said he didn't know what happened either. And dad, I really love you. <clears throat> My sister didn't say anything. So dad started asking her questions about what she'd been doing that day. And she said something about, we got up and we had breakfast and then we went outside and we went down to the creek and we fished for some crawdads and then we chased a frog and then we got back and Chris made plans to go ride on Daniel's house. <laughs> Can you imagine the indignance that I felt at nine being ratted out by my sister? But I maintained it was not me. It was not. Never mind all the words on that house were misspelled the way I misspell everything. <laughs> Spelling wasn't really a, a thing I adjusted to until my mid-30s. So mom and dad knew. Never mind the D's and the B's were backward like I normally did when I was a kid. Never mind outside in our front yard on the sidewalk in one of those big concrete squares, I had drawn out all the plans <laughs> and even put people's names next to the plans. I still didn't want to be found out. I didn't want to be guilty of what I had been accused of being guilty of. Have you ever experienced something like that? It didn't matter how many times I denied it, I was still guilty. That was what the truth was. But I wonder if you've ever experienced the opposite, being accused of something you're not guilty of. When I was in high school, I was running around with a group of people that were not good people to run around with, getting into trouble, doing things I didn't need to be doing. And one of our coaches decided he was gonna try to clean stuff up by getting the problem people out of the way. And that meant um, a guy that was a, a big influence on the rest of us. And he made some decisions to get this guy um, quarantined from the rest of us and in trouble. And when he was approached as to how he would know that any of this was going on, he said, well, I have an inside person who told me it's going on. And they asked who it was. And he said, his name is Chris Craig. It was a big deal. Looking back on it now, it, it all seems silly and foolish, but at the time it was a really big deal. And there could have been a hundred other things that, that anybody could have said about me at that time in my life that would have been true, but that was not true. It was not true and now I'm in a lot of trouble. A lot of trouble with people that I feel like I'm unsafe, I'm in a dangerous place, I've got people angry with me that I don't want to be angry with me because I was accused of something that was not true. I think that might be the backdrop of the chapter that we're in this morning, having been accused of something that wasn't true. And what was written here, and we're gonna be in, in Psalm 139, David, you could have said a hundred other things about David that would have been true. But this one, I think David knows 
this one is not true. Now you're going to remember, if, if you do remember, that a couple of weeks ago we were also in 139, in Psalm 139, and Dave took us through the first six verses. Um, I'm not going to go through those. I'm not going to go through most of it. I'm going to be stuck in just a few of them, but I want to start actually at the end, the end of the chapter, <clears throat> because there's something interesting that I think helps us to see maybe the motivation as to why David wrote this. If you go to the end of, of chapter 139, verse 23, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, my fears, and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. There's something interesting here in verse 24 in this word that I just read is wicked. Yours might say hurtful or grievous. This word, you might also, your translation may have a footnote that tells you it's, it's associated with idol worship. I think David here is asking God to check his heart because, because he knows God can. And let me, let me know if you find any idol worship in there. I think David doesn't think it's true. But I think that's what's going on. You'll also know in verse 20, note in verse 23 that he says no twice. God knowing is, is mentioned in this chapter seven times. Most of it is at the beginning and then right here at the end. But, but suffice to say, David knows God will know. So he's going to someone that actually can tell him the truth. David didn't write this psalm to the other leaders around him. He didn't write this psalm to his friend who might know. He wrote this psalm to the one who definitively would know the truth. So let me ask you a question. If I, if I were to ask you to tell me, how many people do you have in your life who really know you? And I mean, I mean really know you which means you can't use your Facebook friend count. I mean, they know you at your worst. They know you at your best. They know you at the times where they know perfectly well you don't want anybody to know, but they do. 30 of them? I would laugh too if somebody asked me 30. What about 20? 10. What about five? How about three? We've got a few hands. Two. What about just one? There's still a lot of us not able to put a hand up. Why is that? You know, if you look at surveys, the, the two scariest things to humans are public speaking, public speaking, and death. In that order, strangely enough. And I think those are the top two because nobody says being fully known in a survey. 
because we know what is at risk if we're fully known. We know if somebody really knows the depths of our heart, there's a really good chance they don't love us. Why do we know that? Experience. I think probably something we all share in common is having known somebody really well and been known by them really well. And that always means you get hurt worse when you're betrayed. It always means the wounds go deeper. I don't know who it is that accused David of what he's been accused of, but David's response is to go to the one he believes knows him inside and out and is good. David appeals to God to search him out, not just to tell him the answer, but to sift through him. I wonder if um, maybe the reason God a- or David asks God that way is because David's not so sure of himself. There are many of us who would say that oftentimes we are the ones who know us the least. In fact, I would tell you if I was giving you my testimony of coming to Jesus, that what began to change my, ra- my life so radically was me coming to terms with who I really was. It wasn't that I've always known myself. I've been, denial, I've been in denial of who I really am for a long time. Just like I'm standing in front of my dad, trying to pretend that wasn't me with all the evidence stacked against me. It's really hard to be honest. It's really hard to be honest when you know what it's going to mean. <clears throat> so when we look at this chapter in chapter uh, 139, the first section, the section that Dave went through, is this section uh, about God's omniscience. Verses 1 through 6, it's God's knowing everything. The section that we're going to be in today is 7 through 12, and it's about His omnipresence. Him being everywhere all at once. And then the next section, just for your information, is about his power, his omnipotence. There's a quote I'd like to to share with you from A.W. Tozer from The Pursuit of God. He says, in reference to this section, verse uh, verse 7 through 12, he says, No one is in mere distance any further from or any nearer to God than any other person is. That's what we get to see in this chapter, in this section, in this chapter of of how David wrote about God. And it's not, I don't think when you read this, it's not that it's altogether comforting. It can be really alarming to find out that God is everywhere, all at once, always. And I think that that's part of the reason why David starts the way that he does. So consider these, these first two questions that he asks in verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? It almost seems like David wants to get away. To flee something? To escape? Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Rhetorical questions, obviously. 
And then he offers some hypothetical examples of, of, of what, how he might be able to pull that off. In verse 8 and 9, he says, If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me. These two examples of, of the heaven um, going up to heaven, going down to the place of the dead, being able to escape on wings quickly, being as far away as you can possibly get as a human, not far enough. These are, this is the, the, by far in Scripture, in all of the Old and New Testament, this is the single most effective way to communicate God's being everywhere. And then there's relief in verse 11. Relief, even there, your hand shall guide me or lead me. It's a little bit of a relief statement after he's already said in verse 7, where can I go to escape you? And you might be wondering why I think it's a bit of a relief. Most of us don't really think God is as good as he is. We think God's kind of chasing us around with this heavenly switch trying to whack us when we step out of line. That's not who David is describing. Even if I tried to escape, your hand would lead me. <clears throat> Verse 11 and 12, he says, If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. But the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. There's an interesting bit here in verse, verse 11. Um, my translation says fall. If I, if I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me. Mine says fall. Some of your translations are going to say um, overwhelm or cover. Um, but this particular Hebrew word is found only in four places in the Old Testament, twice in the same verse. And that verse is Genesis 3.15. And since I know you all have the Bible memorized, you'll remember that Genesis 3.15 is God's pronouncement about the crushing of the serpent. That's the word used here. Even if the darkness crush me, now, maybe David says it that way because, you know, in a, in a non-civilized age where electricity isn't allowing us to stay up well past the sun, um, the massive window of darkness was the opportunity for evil things to happen. That could very likely be what David is worried about. He's being accused of things, and now on a daily basis, there's a 12 to 14 hour window in which bad stuff could happen. It could be that. If you've ever been accused of something that's not true, and you know what that feels like, it could be that. There's a sickness that consumes you when you've been accused of something that is awful, and you know it's not true. It could be that that's what David's worried about, having to wake up every day and deal with the reality of not wanting to be in this situation. 
having to deal with the reality of feeling awful because the people that may think that they know him well, may even love him, have accused him of something that's just not true. That could be the darkness. But still in his poetic form, the end of verse 11 and 12, he says the darkness can't hide anything from God. So again, that could be this awful window of opportunity. It could be the way I feel still can't hide me from God, which is a comforting thought, especially when you believe that no matter how you try to escape him or no matter what you've done, what he's doing is continuing to gently lead you. That's the God David's writing about here. This, uh, this whole section of being able to trust the presence of God from David's perspective reminds me of a New, a New Testament passage you probably um, are very familiar with. It's from Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, at the very end of the chapter, Paul says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think what you're seeing in Psalm 139 is David wrestling through this situation and referencing the same ideas that you find there in Paul's letter to Rome. So I mentioned that David, I think, is writing this song because he's going to the one who does know. He's going to the one who does know him, who knows him thoroughly. And in those other sections outside of uh, through one through six and then the ones following verse 12, you can see David poke at the things that God knows because he created him, because he's been there, because he's powerful. <clears throat> and one of the mistakes that we make is uh, one of the mistakes we make when we are accused of things, whenever we're hurt by our friends, is we make the mistakes of, of transferring the characteristics of our experience with one another and placing them on God as though he might be that way. And one of the things David is doing for us through this psalm is reminding us that God is not like us. And you can take comfort in that. God is not like us. <clears throat> We take experience and we take hurt and we take baggage and we assume, we assume that the loving God of creation cares about those things. We assume that if God really knew us, he wouldn't like us either. But God's not like us. <clears throat> John tells us, um, John tells us in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, that this is the message that I've been giving you from the beginning, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. We experience the uncomfortable darkness and rejection of humans, and then we're silly enough to turn around and assume God might be a little bit like that, and he's not. No darkness None at all. I think that Jesus, um, Jesus gives us a few examples of how to use this in the New Testament. 
and you're going to find them um, in Luke 15. In Luke 15, there are three parables that Jesus tells. If you want to turn there, you can. I'm only going to read uh, a little bit of one of them. But in Luke 15, there's a story about a lost sheep. There's a story about a lost coin. And then there's a story about a lost son. And I think most of the time when we, when we come to these parables, we, we have in the back of our mind that this is about salvation, that when somebody's not saved, God's going to pursue them because he wants everybody saved. And that, that may very well be true. That's not what this is talking about. This lost sheep was a sheep before he went lost. The coin in the parable belonged to the woman before she lost it. The son who walked away was a son before he walked away. So Jesus tells these parables because he's sitting there. He's sitting there with, with it says, sinners and tax collectors, and the Pharisees mocked him. So he spoke this parable to him. 15 verse 4, he says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you, likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Now, if you think about what this might be like, and you've ever experienced, or you've had any experience um, in the livestock world, like, I'm going to just bet you got 100 sheep and one of them wanders off, that you're evaluating whether it's worth it. Because if you know anything about sheep, you know it's probably going to go again. Or if not, this one, another one. Is it worth it? That's not the way Jesus tells this story. Because Jesus isn't telling a story about what you and I are like. He's telling a story about what he's like. He's telling a story about what God is like. And they would understand it in a society where missing one sheep was a really big deal. We don't live in that world. We live in a world where we've got plenty. <clears throat> so if you take this parable and you can apply it to the lost son or the coin or the sheep, if you take this parable and you take the principles and the characteristics of the God that we are learning about in Psalm 139 and you apply them to the man who goes after the one sheep, here are the characteristics that you have to apply and that is, he was never away from the sheep. That sheep never escaped him. There was never a chance that that sheep was going to be lost without his knowing. He's perfectly capable of finding it. He's perfectly capable of bringing it home because he is all powerful he is all-loving. He's all-present. He can do anything.
These Pharisees are getting up in arms because they think these are the lost sheep, not worth anything. But that's not the way Jesus tells the story. They're worth everything. So he would go and rescue and bring them home. You have to be the type of person who, when you look at Psalm 139 and you think about what God is like, that you can apply the characteristics of God to your thinking and not the other way around. I think that we're really afraid to be known by God because we're applying humanity to him and God's not like us. So I would encourage you to just be honest. Maybe what you've been accused of is true. Maybe it's not true. What does it really matter? I know you know what it matters when it comes to people. What does it matter when it comes to God? God knows us. Even if we tried to escape him, we can't get far enough fast enough. Even if we were capable of going to the ends of the earth, even there, his hand would gently lead us. David wants to be known by God. I want to be known by God. We are known by God. There's comfort to be found in that, not fear, because God loves us. In him, there is no darkness, none at all. you pray with me father thank you for our time together thank you for your word thank you for the truth of your scriptures and how they help us to see and understand what you were like and i pray this morning that you would help us to be free help us to be free to to believe that you are who you say you are and to trust that your nearness and your knowing is for our good. That even in the midst of being guilty or being innocent, accusations do not affect your affection for us, your love for us. So help us to draw near to you in that comfort. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we worship, please?
Thank you for the message, Chris. That was wonderful. Y'all have a, uh, a great week.